This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today has a great title, one I love. It says, Just Show Up. you got to do it anyway. And our author is David Stanley Gregory. David, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Jay. I'm really happy to be here. Tell me the genesis of this title, Just Show Up, you got to do it anyway. It's uh, not a long book to read, 76 pages. What was the inspiration behind this? Well, intentionally it's short because we... As humans, uh, especially in a very high technical age, don't take a lot of time to read as we used to. And I have found, uh, I found in my experience, my life experience, that the only way that I ever healed, changed, became anything was by committing myself to just showing up. And I had uh, several areas of my life from childhood up that I needed to attend to and heal. And I learned that the principle of showing up was the right way for me, the way that worked for me always, and it was a gift that I had learned so well that I wanted to give it away. Do you want to share any of those challenges that affected your early life and put you on this path of discovery? You know, I'm very happy to do that today. Uh, There was a time in my life when I wasn't, because being transparent and authentic it is sometimes a very hard thing to do when you feel very wounded because you don't want people to know who you are. And when I was growing up, um, I had a father that was uh, physically and mentally abusive. And he, in today's age, he would have probably been uh, diagnosed bipolar along with schizophrenic. But in, in this growing up stage with him, I suffered from severe depression. And... Uh, I had to, as an adult, learn how to cope with that. And the way I did that was I would hide everything about me and tell people a story that was not my true self. And in the process of doing that, I wasn't really helping myself. I was not healing, and it took a long time for me to uh, overcome uh, that depression. Along with that with a father of this nature, I also had a religion that he had put us into, and this was the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it was a very, uh, almost, I hate to use the word cult, and I sure have no judgments towards that religion today, but it is very, uh, uh, a very conservative approach and a very um, angry approach at how God looks at us. It was, it was a fearful study of the Bible. And, of course, that added to my uh, depression, along with uh, a story of facing the fact that I had a sexual um, uh, identity that had to be addressed. And finally, after all of that, I I realized that uh, 
I needed to drink. And drinking was a great thing for me because um, I developed I, I developed into a very full-blown alcoholic. But the drinks that I drank actually gave me a new life. And I started looking at things so much differently until the alcohol no longer worked for me. And I ended up in AA. My father committed suicide. My brother was killed in an automobile accident. And I was in a 12-step program. Thank God, because boy, did I need it. So that's a little bit about my history. And uh, I'm very happy to share it and share more of it. Because the transparency and the authenticity of who I am today allowed me to write this book. Tough beginning and a better finish, at least where you are currently. One of your chapters, one of your chapters deals with mandato- mandatory evacuation of the what-ifs and the shoulds, something I think every human on the planet can, can, can relate to. Uh, what are your suggestions there? Oh, my goodness, yes. Well, um, I learned that I had to evaluate those guys. I mean, my God, you know, the what-ifs and the shoulds were everywhere. Well, what if this happens, or should I do this, or... I had a very overactive ego. In fact, one of my biggest uh, fun phrases is, uh, I'm schizophrenic and so am I. Just because all of the voices that I was hearing, and I wasn't connected to my heart center. I had no real connection with an understanding of the God of my understanding. And I didn't even like to use the word God, and I still don't a lot of times in my uh, teachings uh, for my classes and retreats because... That has been a very hard subject for most people because of the judgmental and, uh, and, the, and the cruelty that, went, that goes with that term. However, when I started looking at spirit, the universe, the oneness, I was on my knees to find me a different way of understanding and changing the way I thought so I could have a better life. So the what-ifs and the shits were there, but I made a decision that, they were leaving. And so uh, I put out a thought in my head, and I saw this big board of directors. And every time the what is and the should showed up, I said, hey, you guys, I'm shutting you down right now. You don't know the truth. You don't know the truth of my future. I'm going to stay in the now. And, every, and, of course, that sounds real easy, but those guys kept coming up, and I kept using that tool to uh, shut them down. It really works. Well, from what you said, I, I would get the impression, I don't know, maybe it's wrong, but that you're a motivational guy. Oh, I'm very motivational. I didn't used to be. I was very withdrawn and, and very introverted, but not anymore. Um, you know, when you have a really good message and it's working for yourself, it, it would be um, wrong for me not to share this. It's, it's my journey. It's the service that I'm, I'm committed to, and uh, I'll be doing this for the rest of my life. Fabulous. One of the other chapters, Intention Means You Keep the Ruby Reds. What are Ruby Reds? <laughs> well, it's, it's really interesting that the uh, Wizard of Oz has so many spiritual connections. And the Ruby Reds are what, as you remember, Dorothy was after. Because when she had the Ruby Reds, she got to go home. So... When we keep the ruby reds, that means when we keep our eye on and we focus on the now, we are actually building a future that takes us home. Now, where's home? Home is anywhere we are. It's our heart center because the truth lives within each and every one of us. I found it for myself, and I found it in the classes that I teach, and I've watched people 
access to heart chakra to get the answers they need, get out of the head, and there's the ruby reds. Because the ruby reds, they're wearing them. Man, they're on their way. And they're having a ball. How do you address fear in, in the individuals you're teaching and lecturing? I, I address fear as a loss of freedom. Because the moment we live in fear, we immediately lose freedom. And we're no longer able to have what we're really here to have. Many of us are gifted with so many things, but because we doubt ourselves, have the fear that it might not work, we lose that freedom of trying. For me in my life, the moment I have fear is the moment I do it because I know that that's the motivational step that's going to give me the nirvana I'm looking for. And that means fear of writing this book. The minute I had a touch of that, I immediately got busy. Describe the triplets of success that you have uncovered. Describe the triplets? Yes, the triplets of success. What are they? Would that be faith, trust, and showing up, perhaps? (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm hesitating because I want to make sure that I give you a very authentic answer. In the triplets of success, the first thing is, is we have to know who we are. We must know who we are. And when we find out who we are, we're really going to love who we are. The next thing is, is to fall in love with ourselves. That's number two for me. And number three would be, once I truly love myself, hey, but I can love everybody. And I can be there for everybody. It's not, I'm not going to be changing their lives or fixing their lives. Well, I take that back. I would be changing their lives by not fixing their lives meaning in their emotional drama of watching me or being with me and I'm standing next to them and loving them through a crisis or just a situation, because I love myself enough, I would never engage in their lesson. I would allow them to have it. I might give them a suggestion, but I'd always stand next to them and let them learn that lesson and never take them out of their lesson because then I would be enabling them to have to go back and do it again. Well, effective, so does that answer your question? Yes, I think so. Effective writers and, and teachers and motivators usually are individuals that have come through some life challenges. What was the hardest life challenge that you faced? Forgiving my father, which I had done. Because when I got healthy myself, I realized that the reason he had treated me and my mother and our, the rest of our family the way he did was because he was so deeply wounded. Now, why was he wounded? Well, he was wounded because of what he had gone through as a child, which I found out about more later. And once, I think once you realize that um, what's going on with another person, and, and he wasn't at that point where he was willing to change because he didn't realize really what was wrong with him. And he didn't make that choice in this lifetime to do that. So I had to come to a point, and it was after his suicide, uh, that I honestly forgave him and knew that his true soul, the guy that he really was, um, I had never been really able to access. Because there is not a soul on this earth, in my opinion, that isn't pure, perfect, and whole when they get here. We might have to make some decisions and changes, but the God of my understanding does not create anything that is not perfect. 
Well said. Club nudges, what does that represent? Okay, club nudges, that's going to be a lot of fun. I just started that. Um, I'm doing a Phoenix uh, Rising Daily Nudge uh, on Facebook right now, and it put me into a thought that I better start thinking about remembering some of the meditations that I do in my classes. So I'm writing meditations every day for a meditation book that I'm going to have um, published at the end of this year. Well, then there came a point where I'm getting a lot of people asking me a lot of questions, and I thought, well, let's have some fun here. This is supposed to be fun. This is not supposed to be so hard and so grueling that we can't have some fun. So I've developed Club Nudge, and what that is is that I'm a nudger. I don't fix you, but I nudge you to get you into the heart center of who you are because the still small voice that lives within us has all the answers. So Club Nudge, what is going to happen is on my website, people can write in to me, and they will give me a situation that they're in, and I will give them a spiritual nudge. I won't tell them what to do or how to do it, but I will give them a spiritual nudge of something possibly I've learned, heard, read, whatever. And then they will make the final decision on whether they choose to follow that nudge to help them heal, or maybe they're going to have to hear it from someone else. But at least I'm going to offer all the information I have to that person so that they can start healing. David, how long did it take you to complete this project, this book? And who would you say is going to benefit most from reading it? Hey, I was totally channeled on this. I started, I was not going to write it until I moved to Orange County. I was in Michigan. I was uh, in Douglas. I was on on Lake Michigan and uh, was just finishing up a class. I was moving to Orange County uh, for the winter months because I wanted to teach out in Orange County because there's a big recovery crowd in there, in that area. And this book really is about recovery for the recovering. It's the next step up along with um, some nice uh, areas of some of my understanding of non-separation for the gay community. Oh, we don't need to be separate anymore. There's no longer an option. So to answer your question directly, I started on the, on the book late August. I ended uh, the book in, I knew that I was on the last chapter, late November, and then I started the process of revising a touch of it because most of it was came through so quickly and it was also true and so much truth but there was nothing to change it was more about grammar and making sure that my word was powerful enough that people would understand what i was saying so as you know it's 80 pages and uh, it has a very poignant uh, direct message which i call blue collar spirituality meaning that we put our work in we get it done and then we reap the rewards, and we manifest what we're looking to do with our lives. Fabulous. One of your final chapters is Be the Star of Your Own Show. Good motivational challenge and <laughs> a good good title. Were there other challenges in, in completing this book? What were the challenges? Yes, sir. Were there challenges that made it a, a complex task, or did it come easily? No, no, it was not complex at all. It would have been complex two years ago. It would have been complex 10 years ago, but when you're connected and you and I finally have worked through all the big things that I needed to work through in my life, and when I made the decision to be totally transparent, totally
totally authentic, totally transforming. I mean, I sat down at the computer and, I mean, it just came through. It's like I'm also a painter, and uh, whenever I work in oils, I lose touch with what I'm doing until the final uh, canvas is done. Then I look back, just like I did with a book, and I and I tweak a little, but not much because I've given such an authentic story here, and I have. And when I paint, I get lost in the in what I'm doing. That it absolutely comes out the way it should. I do not overanalyze. I'm more direct and to the point, and that is what saved me personally. And it's something that will help so many other people, so that they're stop the analyzing uh, their lives in analyzing God and the understanding of God and just get down to some basic truth. For other listeners like me and readers who have a short attention span, this is a perfect size book, 80 pages, the title Just Show Up. you got to do it anyway. And our author is David Stanley Gregory. David, where can our listeners get copies of your book? Well, it just went live about two weeks ago. It's online. It's already selling uh, quite fast, which I was real pleased with. surprised me because I haven't really done my marketing yet. Um, but the, the word got out that I have done this book, and it's available on Barnes & Noble online. It's also an e-book, and it's available at Amazon.com. And is there a possibility they could link with you through a website? Absolutely. Um, I just have finished the website. It just went live as well. I had one, and I updated the one that I had, and it's called Phoenix Rising, Newport Beach. And I will be doing classes and uh, retreats in Orange County in the winter months along with Sedona, Arizona, and I will be on the shores of Lake Michigan doing the same thing for the summer months and probably the Grand Traverse Bay area. Well, somebody's got to do it. I'm glad you're able to. That's a, a good book. Just show up. you got to do it anyway. Thank you, David, for sharing the story behind the uh, the inspiration of this book. Oh, well, you're very welcome. And I'm, it, was, it was my pleasure to have an opportunity to tell you about this book and, and why it was written. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. 
Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book today is one that may be controversial to some. It's titled, Government Control of News, A Constitutional Challenge. And our author is Corey Don B. Dunham. Corey, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell me about the story behind this. There are some concerns by individuals like myself who are familiar with what's happening in the news and behind the news. Why did you feel you needed to write this book? I was uh, over 20 years as uh, general counsel of NBC and saw how the government, even sometimes well-intended, but whether or not well-intended, could smother criticism in the press. And if it had the legal right to investigate the press, it couldn't resist that. And uh, Congress would investigate uh, convention coverage, uh, the party in power uh, not wanting criticism of it, and the president in particular uh, not wanting criticism and uh, for years fought the government, uh, sometimes with litigation taking four years, one of them, and many thousands of dollars to keep the government at bay. Um, And I thought things were turning very bad here a few years ago. And unfortunately, I think that's come about. So we now have, for example, a uh, leading journalist of the New York Times And even if they're seen as liberal, they certainly supported Obama writing that, and I want to get that quote right, that the Obama administration is the greatest enemy of press freedom in a generation. Amazing. Just just think about that. I mean, we just sort of assume that we'll have a free press, but it's already being curtailed. It has been. And the threat is even greater. Not only the freedom of the press, but also I think accuracy perhaps is uh, is taking a a, a backseat to to uh, the fairness idea. There have been some uh, press releases or some news releases that the United States has sunk to maybe forty seventh in the right. world's uh, number of co- countries that ha- that is actually a free press. That's startling. Yep. Journalists Without Borders reviews virtually every country in the world every year. And we have sunk to 46. And this country used to be a beacon for free speech and free press. And now we're 46. That's scary. The the fairness doctrine, is that still something that is going to be, I, I personally believe it's going to be something that's pursued by the government entities. Where are you seeing the fairness doctrine uh, as it stands today? What's happening? Government has pulled it back because the courts uh, threw it out, revoked it, because it suppressed news, chilled speech, and prevented criticism of the president. And unfortunately, this president turns out to be someone who isn't going to take criticism. So the fairness doctrine, when he took office, was put back under a different name called uh, localism. And uh, that got hung up. And then they came up with a new one, the commission, which he appoints the chairman of and a majority that controls the uh, 
broadcasters, and uh, they passed, or were about to pass the uh, law that would have set up local boards to review all news over the air. And if uh, it was defective in their view, then uh, they had to recommend loss of license, which obviously, obviously would, you know, intimidate broadcasters everywhere. Frightening. They, they dropped that, and now they've got floating something where they're going to investigate why you picked this subject for a news broadcast and why you picked what you did to say about it. Now, that's on hold for the moment. But they keep at it. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and the Obama's very close friend, Cass Sunstein, fellow law professor, has written that uh, the government, he's long urged this, the government in power should take over the press to achieve its social objectives. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. And they had planned or had been talking about actually moving governmental overseers inside the newsrooms to watch yes. what yep. was going on. So it shows you their, I would say, lack of respect, <clears throat> certainly the lack of valuing, but in this Times reporter's words, you know, they're being an enemy of press freedom. They just aren't going to take any dissent or criticism, and they'll find ways to do it. They're even, they had planned to change broadcast spectrum from broadcast over the air use to the internet, and that's underway now. But one of the fallouts from that will be that the kind of talk shows or interviews or news provided by broadcasters will be off the air. They'll be gone. They won't have any spectrum. And maybe they can make alliances with cable, but that's a different story. You're going to have different owners and uh, less freedom. They also are doing some steps or making some steps to control the Internet. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that you know, the FCC didn't have any control of the Internet. They, uh, uh, on their own, without any congressional or executive suggestion, uh, passed a rule a couple of years ago saying they would oversee the Internet. Um, And the courts overturned that. But now they're back, finding other ways to do it. In addition, what is going on is when I was uh, there at NBC, we would watch the Commerce Department, which in carrying out its role for commercial interests, would join many other countries, and they'd negotiate different things on how they would handle stuff, hardware as well as software, uh, for commercial reasons. Now, our commercial department does not have the First Amendment as its guiding light. And we were always concerned and watched to make sure that the Commerce Commerce Department never had any say about who could control the Internet. Now, this administration, within the last two weeks, I think, has decided that we will no longer control our own uh, internet uh, addresses or controls 
and we're going to give that up to what will be a consortium of governments. And, of course, the heavy hitters in that consortium will be Russia, China, and a few other countries in South America who don't value the First Amendment. And you've got to know that the Commerce Department, to make the compromises necessary to them, will have to give up stuff on the free press and free speech, as Russia and China insist on it. Hmm. So, you know, we're talking about shooting ourselves in the foot. You wonder what this president is thinking when he authorizes this kind of stuff. Uh, there are many who do uh, have an opinion about what he's thinking, but they don't express it very much or don't have the no, platform no. To, to express it. And it's very hard to stop because it's all done maybe not with stealth, but the, the mind that says, well, let's have the FCC reinstate the fairness doctrine so we can control the news, but we'll call it localism, which sounds good. That tells you, I think, that, you know, this is an inadvertent what's happening to our free press in this country now. Now, if we lose the free press independent news watchdog over the government, it would be a, a disaster, obviously. But who else might be able to do this? Who else in terms of? Uh, being able to control media and and uh, take care of the uh, oversight of the government. But we can't. Once you have the government there, and this we learned from the Fairness Doctrine, that wasn't academic. That was an actual you know, exercise. The government has to, in order to act, it says, it has to investigate. Well, if you're a station or a newspaper or whatever, and you get a little call from the government that says, we're sending two investigators over to look into your program on Corey Dunham or uh, Joe Dokes or uh, the other party, the political party, that's going to, you know, ring. And uh, the entire organization will know that the government is investigating. And uh, as with the Fairness Doctrine, that meant the whole system had to change to deal with this government inquiry. They interviewed the news people and their sources. That's the big thing. Uh, and, you know, many of them were intimidated. A smaller station didn't have the money to fight the government. NBC, and it's one of its big fights, the legal bills were $400,000. Uh, because the government's, you know, coffers are, when it comes to fighting the press, unlimited. They just call up the Department of Justice, and away it goes. So this administration also knows that one way to stop the press is to go after its sources, go after leaks, and they have a special unit they've set up to go after leaks, which otherwise would be news, information, flowing to the newspapers confidentially, and then the newspapers would re report to the public. Well, they've brought this administration over 200 prosecutions against the press leaks. And I mean, nobody's going to talk to the press if you want to divulge, you know, what is abuse or wrongdoing, because you're going to be scared to get investigated, and you will be. And this has already worked. The head of the Associated Press from that government subpoena and investigation uh, said uh, the government will see that you only know 
what the government wants you to know. And that's a very, very scary thing. From your observation point, and you've been in broadcasting or associated with broadcasting for a number of years, and this is a well-thought-out, well-researched book. It's not just um, commentary on opinion. (laughs) You've got 296 pages. Is there any way that you can see that government officials really can gain control over broadcast news, as you've uh, claimed in your book? Well, it so happens that I, I think they could. But it'll be very quiet. In the fairness doctrine situation, they did gain control. The government used, and both parties, once it's established, both parties will do it. And there's no respecting of uh, nobility. Uh, Nixon used the uh, fairness doctrine to go after the news reports he didn't like. And the Kennedy administration used the fairness doctrine to drive conservative commentators off the air. They would file a lot of complaints under the law, and the government would investigate them, and it got so broadcast it said, hell, I'm not going to get into that mess fighting City Hall. You know, we just won't cover it. We won't you know, do con- controversial stuff or stuff that's going to offend the president. Do you have that? Do you have, you know, that's the end of freedom. I mean, jeez. <laughs> Yes. The free press is the only thing that keeps us free. What is your suggestion or recommendation, not only on a national level, but on a local level, in order to combat this? I think uh, we have to talk it up. We have to disclose what's happening. And one of the problems is, unlike years ago, when the owners of newspapers and the owners of the networks and the like would you know, get up and make speeches... And they would be heard, and that would gather attention, and the government would pull back. Though they're not saying a word, in my view, it looks to me like they've been co-opted. They've got so many irons in the fire before Congress and subject to presidential disapproval that they're not saying a word. They'd rather, you know, uh, just stay quiet and do what they can, sort of like getting caught up with China. I think. The only thing a citizen individually can do is to become more than an individual. You've got to join groups, uh, support political entities on this issue. Not all of them necessarily that they have, but on this issue, you've got to write the uh, Congress, members of the Congress. Uh, it's, it's a tough goal. The people who supported bringing back the fairness doctrine included Reed, Who's the Democrat, the Democratic leader of the Senate, and uh, Pelosi, who was the, at that time the Democratic leader of the House. So this is no easy uh, fight to fight. We've got to have groups, or the press itself, and uh, organizations, those who believe in constitutional government or in the Constitution, uh, have got to start to speak up. And if enough, enough noise is made, then you could hope that maybe they'll, government people will pull back. But as it is now, why should they? They can prevent criticism so they don't you know, have trouble at re-election, and their views will, will carry the day. Now, Corey, you've got years of experience in this area. How long did it take you to write your book and, and put the facts out there for the public to read? 
oh, it took several years when I saw this starting to happen. And I wanted to write a book. It's not very entertaining and no pictures, but I wanted to write a book that would stand as, so to speak, a testimony of an executive at one of the leading networks of the day at that time. It happened to be NBC, but any other, uh, uh, Frank Stanton, I don't want to be compared with him, but he was great. He ran CBS, and I wrote a book about him and his fight with Congress and Nixon uh, about uh, coverage, uh, which they tried to stop. But the the uh, I wanted a book that now and for the foreseeable future you could turn to, and every statement in it that meant, you know, an opinion or might be seen as an opinion or a, a fact has, has a site, as you say, several hundred pages of footnotes. And uh, I don't want to put people off of that, but if you see in that book I've written a sentence, you'll see that there's a number there, and you can check and see what the source is for that. Who needs to read your book, Corey? All of us. It's slow going, I know, for say high school, but uh, uh, most of us remember the Kennedy and the Nixon administrations in different ways, of course. And most of us remember some of these fights. For example, the the uh, convention in Chicago when uh, Lyndon Johnson decided he wouldn't run, and the, the then Daly out there wanted his city to look good, so he turned out the National Guard, all the policemen brought in the military to keep things quiet, and there were people who dissented and who wanted to raise the question of the Vietnam War, and uh, boy, oh boy, they were given a rough time, and the networks covered that. Now, I got to tell you, the Congress was just incensed that the networks would broadcast dissent like they did then. And they investigated the networks, hearings. We produced, you know, thousands of documents and uh, film. Uh, that's the government power. So if someone like Reed, who happens to be a majority leader of the Senate, threatens the press, and, you know, they know there are ways he can get out. And that's the risk for all of us. It's a scary idea and uh, an important book that you've written. Were there challenges in getting this into print? Well, uh, sometimes, for some unknown reasons, there would be some, but nothing that really prevented, uh, I wasn't prevented really from saying what I wanted to be said, what should be said. Uh, I was very fortunate that way. And it's, you know, it's low key. It doesn't have... Uh, a big call to arms on the cover and all that. But, uh, you know, the, the, the meat is there. Now, I didn't then know, of course, what would happen as it has over the past two years where you have the present administration really uh, going to bat. This guy, Cass Sunstein, who is the president's advisor and was in charge of all regulatory affairs at the White House, he wrote that with the new kind of society we have, we should have a single channel that would be the government's channel if they didn't take over all the news that would be subsidized by the government and print 
but the government wanted it to print. And that would be one way to uh, inculcate uh, the public as to what the, the government wanted to be done. And obviously, if you have that with unlimited resources, uh, it's like City Hall. You know, you, it's a tough, you have a tough time criticizing them. It's an important story, and in the way you've described it, somewhat frightening. The title of the book is Government Control of News, a Constitutional Challenge, and our author, Corey Don B. Dunham. Corey, where can we get copies of your book? Amazon is the best bet, I think. Or you can write to uh, or call uh, our universe, and uh, they uh, put it out as a... Uh, what is called a trade pack, uh, uh, paperback, which means heavier paper. And, uh, you know, they can, uh, you can order it from them, either place, iUniverse or uh, Amazon. Corey, thank you for sharing your story and sharing this important bit of information that our listeners need to be aware of and need to take a stand on. I appreciate your taking the time to do that and sounding the alarm about this vital and important subject. Thank you. Listeners, you can learn more about government censorship on Corey's blog at www.freepressdunham.com. That's www.freepressdunham, that's spelled D-U-N-H-A-M, dot com. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Itsy Bitsy Spider. And the author is Dale L. Pitts. And Dale joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dale. Hi, how are you doing this morning? Well, great to have you with us right in our studio. We don't get this opportunity very often to have one of our authors uh, be with us like this. So, again, welcome. Uh, you drove up from Houston. I'm very happy to be here. Itsy Bitsy Spider. I know when I first saw the title, I went, oh, a kid's book. Wow, this, this sounds interesting, but obviously not a kid's book. It's a book of uh, basically science fiction novel, and it deals with the interaction between a man and a form of life not encountered by anyone before, as you call them, subterranean beings. That's right. And we'll learn more about who they are and who the 
obviously the main characters and the plot. Uh, but first, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Dale, and how this book came about. Well, I'm I'm a native Texan. Uh, my uh, my family has been here for many many years, and uh, I've been made many miles in my professional career. I've lived over most of the United States. I've lived out of the United States from time to time. I've had a, a variety of uh, professional experiences. I, I started out as a high school biology teacher, football coach, and I moved <laughs> from that into uh, being an FBI agent, and that's, that's a long story, too. Uh, from there, I, I moved around the United States, and then uh, the moving actually was too much for the family. We decided we can't, uh, can't move every year like we have in the past. So we decided to come back to Texas. I got back into public education, uh, became a principal, became a school district superintendent. I wound up, uh, after I retired, uh, being a professor in college at several different places. I've been a, a, uh, an assistant athletic director at Texas Christian University. So I've, uh, I've done some things. I guess you have. My goodness. And now you're an author on top of it. I'm trying to be, yes. Now you're an author, Itsy Bitsy Spider. Tell us about John Paul Gordon. He's the main character. John Paul Gordon is the main character. And uh, I was once told by a person, a friend that I have, that write about something you know about. Well, I know about schools, so I decided to make John Paul a school district superintendent. The book is not about schools, but everybody has to be something. <laughs> so the main character is a, a school district superintendent. And uh, he runs into some very tough luck uh, in his life, loses his wife in a tragic accident, and uh, uh, doesn't really know what he's going to do with himself. And uh, he he gets involved in the job that he has, and uh, he decides, I need to move on. You know, I'm unhappy here, and I need to move on down the road. So he moves to West Texas, and that's when his uh, experiences begin. Um, he, so is this a fictional place in West Texas, this well, town? Well, it has a fictional name. All of the towns that are listed in the book are real. The the town where all the action takes place is a real town. I give it a, a, a fictional name. However, if you've been to West Texas and been around this area, you'll know immediately <laughs> the town we're talking so about. So you have him move to a place called Appleby. 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 Uh-huh. Appleby. And, of course, he's trying to get away from these obviously uh, terrible uh, experiences that he's had, the loss of his uh, wife, and and he starts to drink. Well, he does. He it's it's sort of a refuge for him, and it he gets to where he drinks a little too much, and it's uh, I won't say it. It's because of the drinking that the Midas, the the subterranean beings appear, but he is inebriated the first few times he sees them, uh, and I think that prevents him from being afraid of them when he first sees them, and things develop from there. So would we be afraid of them if we saw them for Probab- the first time? Probably. They look a little different. They look different. I could go into great detail <laughs> to describe them. And uh, the, the, the funny thing about it is uh, John Paul has a dog. The dog's name is Homer. Homer's not afraid of these subterranean beings. So there's hmm. there's something about them that right. allows a, an immediate 
Well, and Homer's a devoted friend to Jean Paul. John Very. Paul. So if Homer's not afraid, <laughs> you're right. You're yeah, right. I mean that's usually we get a sense of folks when the dog is around. Dogs seem to sense things. Homer's cautious, but he's not afraid as you might expect. Now, when he goes to Applebee, he also meets Nancy. He meets Nancy Reina, who is a uh, a veterinarian. She's a graduate of Texas A and M, and uh, she actually they actually meet as a result of Homer. Homer needs some uh, veterinarian care, and that's how they meet. So obviously, we've got a relationship growing here between John Paul and Nancy. Uh, but animals are turning up dead. The well, they're turning up missing. We don't missing. Know, oh, we, okay, missing. Yeah, because there's very little evidence when when the animals turn up missing. There's very little evidence evidence as to what happened to them. And, is there uh, anything left? I mean, is there blood or is there? Well, in, in one situation where a, a dog turns up missing, the dog's collar is all they find. There's another situation where, situation where a horse turns up missing. They find a, a piece of the horse's ear and a few drops of blood, and that's all that they find. So there's something, as you put it, devious going on. That's exactly right. Devious. Yeah, well, yeah, devious. Uh, uh, this is where the protection idea comes from. John Paul does not know what is happening to these animals, but after it happens several times, he starts putting things together, and he gets suspicious, and things develop from there. So he may be a target. He may. I don't think so. No, I, okay. and I don't think I don't intend to give the uh, the feeling that he is a target uh, because uh, the subterranean beings. They've never been aggressive or shown any aggression toward him, so therefore he's not afraid. He's not afraid of them, but uh, there's something strange going on. There's something devious going on. Uh, without giving away, of course, the, the whole right. plot here, uh, because of these strange things that are happening and the animals that are disappearing, appearing, the small community, how is it affecting them? Well, it's it's primarily affecting the people who live on the, the outskirts of the little community, the, the ranchers, because those are the animals that are missing. I need to bring up here probably the, the title of the book is Itsy Bitsy Spider, and, and I don't mind telling the whole world there are no spiders in it. But the Itsy, <laughs> the itsy Bitsy Spider comes from the old nursery rhyme mm-hmm. song, Itsy Bitsy Spider. Right, right. And, uh, when John Paul sings this song, he's able to control the subterranean beings because they like the song. <laughs> they like the song. Now, do, how much do we learn about the Midas? Midas. Uh-huh. Midas. How much do we learn about them? Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, uh, you know, obviously they're appearing to John Paul, but there, is there more going on here? Is there, is there something that, that they need from John Paul? No, no. It's the Itsy Bitsy Spider song that they like to hear him sing. Okay. So, uh, but when Homer is threatened, they get involved. They get involved. In fact, Homer has an accident, and 
the Midas see Homer as an extension of John Paul's family. They've adopted, in a sense, the whole family. And when something happens to Homer, an accident happens with Homer, they want to uh, make it right or take care of whatever caused the accident. And, of course, the same would apply to John Paul if he's threatened at all. They're... Absolutely. There are, there are a couple of situations where John Paul, well, I don't mind telling you here and telling the audience, John Paul gets bitten by a dog. The Midas see the injury and they want to know they don't talk, but they have a way to communicate, want to know what happened. Well, he explains to them what happened, and uh, uh, they take care of the dog, so to speak. So they become very much a part of John Paul's life. They do. They're not there all the time. They appear periodically, so it's not like they're, they're you know, family. They're not there all the time. So after writing this book, are you a real believer in subterranean I'm not going to say that I believe they exist, but I will be quick to say I don't think it's impossible. Not impossible, everyone. And uh, John Paul, is he patterned after, you know, someone real? Is that you? Eh, probably very loosely. Uh, he gets involved, even though I said the, school, the story is not about schools, because he works at a school. There are some situations at the school that I've been involved in, so I just use that as a pattern. And if we did, if we did actually see them, or if, if we really knew they existed, would people be afraid of the Midas? Probably so, because they're different, and I think one of our uh, natural instincts as human is we, we don't trust or we're afraid of things that are dramatically different, so they probably would be afraid. So John Paul, he's had to literally recoup, uh, kind of reinvent himself. Is, is that a theme of this story? No, the basic theme in, in my mind is the idea of relationships that have been developed between John Paul and the Midas, between John Paul and his dog, between John Paul and Nancy, between John Paul and some of his neighbors. Uh, the, 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 the message I'm trying to deliver is the importance of friendships, relationships, devotion, loyalty, to, because the Midas are extremely loyal to John Paul. And in this case, we all heard the saying, you know, bad things sometimes happen to good people. At the same time, when bad things happen, something good can evolve from it. Absolutely. It's because Nancy and John Paul both have been through, they've both lost their spouses in traumatic situations. And because of the things that are happening, it draws Nancy and John Paul together, which is a, a good way to end a story. And, of course, uh, good deeds really can make a big difference. Absolutely. I don't think that you ever pass up an opportunity to, to do a good deed for another person, for another animal, for anything. Well, Dale, in just the time we have left, uh, any closing thoughts uh, that you'd like to share about Itsy Bitsy Spider? Well, you know, I made the statement that these, uh, these miters are not creatures or monsters. The book can be read very enjoyably by people probably – by readers probably from junior high age on up because there's no there's no graphic violence there's no sex in the book there are places where things happen and you use your imagination you can think whatever happens happens you know that's up to you it's your relationship with that book so you think whatever you want to think but it's 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 a book that would be uh, acceptable for most readers 
We've been listening to author Dale L. Pitts. He's the creator of his book, Itsy Bitsy Spider, uh, with iUniverse. Tell us how to get your book, if there's other ways besides iUniverse. Yes, the book is uh, available on uh, Amazon.com. It's available uh, at Barnes & Noble's bookstores as well as through Barnes & Noble's uh, on the Internet. Uh, it's available from me. I don't have a website up and operating right now. It's in process, but uh, you know. I've, Do you know what it will be? What the uh, the URL will be? Um, I have it. I don't have okay. it committed to memory. I, I can uh, get rid of this out of the. I can edit this out. Okay. Well, Dale, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Hey, this has been a good experience, and I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.